Well, to me, the, the, the power of water is the capacity to cleanse itself. You know, this is very symbolic, uh, both for our mind, uh, as it is symbolic for the needs that we have. Water has the, the incredible capacity to clean itself over very short period of time at very short distances. Because the way the structure of the molecule of the water is with its 61 degree angles uh, with uh, the H2O uh, forces it uh, to, to circle. So water is never able to go in a straight line. I mean, it's quite amazing that we wanted to have rivers straight and we wanted to have canals built straight. I mean, anyone who builds straight canals is crazy in his mind because he's never looked at water and certainly never observed how the molecules are forced by the mere physics of the molecule to swirl. My name is Gunter Pauli. I'm, I'm someone who bothers people because I don't want to keep on thinking the way that we've been thinking for the past 50 years. So, so in French, we have a nice word for that. We call it emmerdeur, the one who really disturbs people. So, so I didn't come to this world to please everyone. I came to this world to bother a lot of people because if we want to change the world, then we're going to have to go through some discomforts. Um, and uh, so, so that's my role. And, and how do I do it? Uh, I do it in the first place by doing things, not by talking about them. I, I prefer to talk very little and do a lot. Uh, and second, um, I, I think the only way we really change uh, reality is uh, by taking children at heart and, and tell them magnificent, surprising stories. And, and only when we can reach out to children and tell them many surprising stories, I know the world will change. Um, even if I fail, the kids will never fail. So that's me, father of six children, by the way. Thank you. Mm, to continue on on the topic of water, uh, I picked out a quote from uh, Victor uh, Schauberger, and the quote is, uh, the true foundation of all culture is the knowledge and understanding of water. Well, well, Victor Schauberger is, of course, uh, my, my inspiration, my hero. I mean, how this Austrian forester uh, has been able to uh, think through water by observing how it behaves, uh, not by analyzing, but first of all, by the power of observation. And, you know, it, it's to me very interesting that uh, when people discuss water and say, well, what's strange when water freezes, it expands. Um, whereas all logic is that whatever freezes becomes smaller. Uh, we forget that water is the most abundant molecule on Earth. So that means that the way water behaves is the standard of life on Earth. And if we think water molecule is the exception, then we got it wrong. Everything else is the exception. Water is the standard. And, and this is why people like uh, uh, Professor Pollack in the United States is so central, because he is another person who has been, like Victor Schauberger, been observing water and realizing. But at the same time, um, we need to look at the beauty of water. 
and 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 the beauty of water of course no one else has better expressed it to, to our eyes um as uh, masaru emoto with his uh, crystals um so we need to go from observation observing how it behaves in nature and what it does to us when we let water flow because water has only one responsibility that is to flow uh, water is not to be static i mean my my view is that uh, if water behaves uh, like money then we see the reality on the earth today if money is staying in a bank account then it gets bad water that doesn't flow gets bad and so we need to have to flow in the dynamics and Schomburger is the one who who to me showed uh, the power of water and the the ingenuity of water and and Masaru Emoto is the one who who shows me its beauty thank you mm. I listened uh, yesterday to your uh, World Water Day talk. Uh, I think it was in uh, Vatican that you gave, and uh, there you said uh, something like that: that um, innovation that uh, changes the rules of the game. And uh, the question would be, uh, what kind of innovation for water that changes the rules of the game? Well, to me, the the, the power of water is the capacity to cleanse itself. You know, this is very symbolic, uh, both for our mind, uh, as it is symbolic for the needs that we have. Water has the the incredible capacity to clean itself over very short period of time at very short distances, because the way the structure of the molecule of the water is, with its sixty one degree angles, uh, with uh, the H two O. Um, forces it uh, to to circle, so water is never able to go in a straight line. I mean, it's quite amazing that we wanted to have rivers straight, and we wanted to have canals built straight. I mean, anyone who builds straight canals is crazy in his mind because he's never looked at water, and certainly never observed how the molecules are forced by the mere physics of the molecule. To swirl. Now, when you have a swirling movement, uh, you have this uh, grand capacity to create what also uh, Schauberger described in such wonderful detail. You have the vortex. You know, the 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 vortex is actually this this self empowering cleansing, whereby as the vortex gets faster and faster with higher and higher pressure, I mean, all impurities must get out. And as all the impurities are out and water moves from a vertical to a horizontal, uh, you know, vortex, water has the capacity to move from aerobic to anaerobic and from anaerobic to aerobic. It means it can move from a water that is rich in oxygen to a water that is having no oxygen. And that means it's really deciding on a dividing line um, between life uh, of uh, the aerobic world and life of the anaerobic world. And they're two different worlds. And 
And thanks to the laws of physics that are determining the behavior of the molecule of water, we see this, this magical performance, which is no magic at all. I mean, it's just following uh, the, the laws of physics on, to which we have to submit ourselves, but this capacity to self-cleanse. Water will always clean itself. You put the dirtiest toxins in there, the vortex technique will eradicate it, and the life that is required to support all life on Earth will actually be drawn back into uh, the, the vortex thanks to its capacity of absorbing oxygen. Could you please, uh, mm, currently I'm reading the, the Schauberger's book, uh, Water Wizard, and uh, there he talks about how the forests are directly uh, affecting our waters. You know, water has this amazing capacity uh, to defy the standard thinking that we have, for example. I mean, we all learn the law of gravity, but water has the capacity to go against the law of gravity. And, and, and this is how we create life above the soil. Because if water cannot go up against the law of gravity, there is no life in the tree. I mean, we, we forget that this, this capillary power, this capillary forces that allow water to go inside the capillary up. And this trans-evaporation, the evaporation through the leaves that creates this suction between the roots and the leaves, is something that permits water to permeate all living biological matter that is therefore capable of going against the law of gravity. So what very many people forget is that the the capacity to go against the law of gravity is the precondition for a forest. Um, is the precondition to have nuts full with water and, and 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 vitamins. I mean, this is this is all about going against the law of gravity. I mean, do we realize that a healthy apple tree will will actually move two hundred and fifty kilograms of apple? with the juices in, thanks to the juices of the tree, up in the tree. How do we explain that a full-grown coconut tree will have pumped 30 meters above the ground level about 300 liters of water into the coconuts? I mean, let, let, let's just stop and, and think about it. There is no pump, huh? No one is, no one is pumping uh, the water into the coconuts no one is pushing the apples up on the tree. It is all thanks to water to behave in a way that we as human beings think is impossible. Now, it's impossible because we don't understand that we never studied water. I mean, water is the least understood substance we have. And unless we start understanding the life that is possible thanks to water. But the life that is thanks, uh, possible thanks to water is only possible because water is alive. I mean, <laughs> if you don't have life, water, it can't give life either. Life is given to a living being 
thanks to its own resilience and capacity to live. <clears throat> uh, another uh, thing you mentioned uh, in the talk uh, on the World Water Day uh, was um, today uh, there's a lot of talk about sust sustainability. And uh, But uh, what I wrote down from there, what you said that was that uh, saving water is, um, is not good enough. Well, you know, if we save water, we're in the same logic of... Uh, uh, of, of the painful life on earth. I mean, water is destined to be abundant. That means we have to permit the ecosystems to regenerate more drinking water, more potable water, more living water. And unfortunately, what we have in mind is use less, but using less is of no service to anyone because the more water flows, the more life we have, the more diversity there will be, the more energy there will be. And that is why I'm very clear that the mere logic of saving or the mere logic of reducing, uh, like with carbon emissions, is not going to make any difference. We have to have the intelligence, the wisdom to regenerate water on an ongoing basis. And, uh, and of course, I can speak to this uh, subject from personal experience. In, in 1984, we started planting 8,000 hectares of forest in the Vichada in Colombia, which is close to the Orinoco River. And three years afterwards, three years later, by 87, we had fully covered the 8,000 hectares with 8 million trees, 8.5 million trees, and immediately we had a physical effect from the small tree cover that we created, because these are treelings, these are, these are small little trees, but that already covered the soil, and what I always insist on is we forget that the laws of physics dominate life. Since we dropped the surface temperature of the savanna, which used to be a forest that had been cut down 250 years before by the Spanish who wanted to have meat. I mean, the Spanish wanted to have meat to fight curvy on their galleon ships that were transporting gold. So we're still in the same stupid mentality of cutting down forests to have meat. It failed then, it fails now, but we keep on making the same error. But coming back to the fact that when we had three years of growth, we had already 70% cover of the soil, the temperature of the soil dropped, and we inverted the delta of uh, temperature of soil versus temperature of rain. What does it mean? In the first place, it means that when you have a hot soil and the rain falls and the temperature of the soil is higher than the temperature of the water, even when you can percolate and make the water get into the soil, it will not because of the temperature difference. So you have what we call the frying pan effect. And so the water immediately re-evaporates and you have a desert in the making. 
laws of physics. You cut trees, you create a desert. By having the chance to regenerate the temperature on the, on the reverse side, that means the soil is cooler than the rain, the rain percolates and regenerates the forests. That's all you need to do. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing, you know, but by simply changing the temperature of the soil, securing it is lower than the temperature of the rain, you will have an absorption, a sponge effect of the soil, and you will actually be building up your water reserves. If you do that and your water starts percolating, you actually filter the water. I mean, you mineralize the water. Very few people realize that rainwater is not good water because it has no minerals. I mean, today it will have microplastics, but it will have no minerals. So when we succeed in percolating it for five or 10 meters through the soil, all of a sudden you generate drinking water, rich, living drinking water. And when the local population shifts from the water that is bottled or the water that is treated to a water that comes from this filtration of this natural process, all of a sudden we eliminated all gastrointestinal diseases. It's just the water, the rightly mineralized water. And of course, minerals means that you will have the right bacteria, the right fungus. I mean, water is not a carrier of the, the black pest only. I mean, that happens when we are very stupid as human beings, not knowing what we're doing with water. But what we have succeeded is securing that not only do you have a wonderful mineralized filtered water, which in itself will regenerate the forest, help regenerate the forest, and at the same time will regenerate the health. We have proven with uh, 20 years of statistics that in this small patch of 8,000 hectares, Rainfall increased 10%. 10% on 8,000 hectares. That is massive amount of water that all of a sudden has become available. So biodiversity of the forest went from 11 species, sorry, 16 species of which 11 were non-native, went to 256 species and all the non-natives were eliminated because once the force of nature takes over, the non-native species are gone. And what was the trigger? What, is the, what was the dynamics? It's that water all of a sudden could get into the soil, was filtered, could be taken up, mineralized. The plants had much more nutrition than ever before. And I should never forget to mention that the water that we used was enriched with mycorrhizal fungi. So we think that the symbiosis is not tree plus fungus. No, no, it's water carrying the fungus first and then the fungus very quickly establishing the canals to have a permanent, permanent flow of nutrition through these incredible networks set up 
in the subsoil around the roots. <clears throat> yeah, this is a beautiful example how um, water is life and uh, how from this uh, little change uh, so much uh, more life uh, comes out of. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, changing the eco economic model uh, to generate the business ideas that generate water. And I remember the example you gave from the uh, World Waterway talk was um, uh, growing tomatoes in Australia. Yeah, right. Uh, you see, uh, one of the biggest problems we have is we are stuck with ideas that we say is the truth and nothing but the truth. So, one of the big lies that we have been told is that you must have water to farm vegetables and fruits. I mean, who said so? I mean, tell me, who said you have to pump the water to where your plantations are? Who said so? And, and today, we even make our food security dependent on our capacity to irrigate. And as a result, 70% of the world's fresh water is used for agriculture. I mean, who said this is the rule? No, this is what we call self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, you have a prophecy and you're going to make certain that everything you do is going to be self-fulfilling so that you prove that what you said without any type of irrigation, you will not be able to meet the food needs of a growing world population. Wrong. What we need to do is change the rules of the game, use a different tactic. Because, you know, the big lesson uh, on, on water uh, I learned in the Namib Desert. You know, there are two phenomena in the Namib Desert which are fascinating. Uh, uh, maybe three, and actually if I start thinking about it, I could just talk about the Namib Desert from now on, and how with one and a half centimeter of rain per year, how can they create abundance of water? Of course, when we come to the Namib Desert, we see nothing but desert. <laughs> yes, because we have glasses on our face and we only see water, 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 irrigating, water, rain, etc. But let me tell you the following. Um, maybe you've seen these dry patches in the Namib Desert. You know, it's a small circle where nothing grows. And that's because the plants have agreed. I mean, plants are intelligent. We know that. Um, the plants have agreed that when the rain falls, there's not enough to cover the whole desert with flowers. So the plants have this root system that goes into the circle and sucks all the water out of the circle. So nothing grows there. But that allows it to grow everything else. Now, people, when they come to the desert, they realize that they're elephants, they're lions, they're hyenas, they're giraffes. The whole biodiversity lives there and functions. That means water must be available. And the water is available first and foremost thanks to the plants deciding that they will create patches where nothing grows so that everything else can grow everywhere. It, it's beautifully done. And with aerial photography, you see the dry patches. So the plant's wisdom allows the animals to live. 
But there is one animal, small desert bug, that is the champion of uh, taking a shower every day. I mean, when, when there would be a water shortage, then people would tell you, don't shower every day, you know, skip a few days because there's not enough water. The desert beetle, the Nami desert beetle, takes a shower every morning. And it just needs to organize the abundance of water. Of course, we think that there is no water, but the desert beetle knows there is enough water. It just has these very unique scales on its uh, back that are checkered with hydrophobic and hydrophilic parts. Hydrophobic means it rejects the water. Hydrophilic means it tracks the water. And so it's like a chessboard with hydrophobic and hydrophilic. And every morning there is a higher humidity in the desert because of the temperature difference. And so when the humidity is at the highest, the minute droplets of water that are sticking to the cover of the black, the black, uh, the black Namib desert beetle will roll off and be attracted to the area where it is hydrophilic. And as a result, you see the beetle every morning taking a shower and having a drink. I mean, <laughs> he just uses. So when I saw that, the suction system of the plants, and I saw the beetle, then I learned uh, about uh, the scientific work that had been done uh, over, over decades that allows us to imitate exactly the same for farming. So what do we do? We take a land, you have a cold source of water, it's the same, the delta T, the difference of the temperature. So you have a soil where the temperature rises because it's desert-like or it is in the hot part of the world, and you take water maybe from the sea or water from 100 meters deep like in Rajasthan, and then you pump the water up let it flow through small, tiny pipes and let it flow back to the sea or let it flow back to the, to the well. means you don't consume any water. The only thing you do is you create a cold field. And if you have a cold field, the temperature difference between the air can only lead to one thing, condensation. So apply that now to a couple thousand acres of tomatoes. And you apply that, and if you pump water, water has this wonderful capacity to expand. So if you take water of 12 degrees out of the 20, 30 meter deep sea, and you let it flow through the land, the temperature will increase. As the temperature increases, the water will expand. That means you don't even need to pump. You only need to get the pump going once. And once it's flowing, water will flow automatically without pumps. I mean, this is so beautiful. It's so, and it's so simple because the only thing you do is rise the temperature by one or two degrees and water keeps on flowing. Unlimited. I mean, unlimited. I mean, this is permanent energy. But the condensation leads to a very surprising effect that when normally tomatoes require 210 liters of water 
for cultivating one kilo of tomatoes. Now, one kilo of tomatoes produces three liters of water. You know, today, Sundrop Farms has 5%, 5% of the Australian market. Tomatoes that produce water. Gone the logic that you need to irrigate and you need to divert rivers and you need to do all the desalination in order to be able to have agriculture. Wrong. That is the gas-guzzling, energy-guzzling solution that comes from a poor mind, that it comes from a mind that is not able to observe how we can deal with water. And it's always the same. When I'm face-to-face -face with a challenge, I will go to the place where the challenge is the worst for any form of life. So if you want to learn about water and efficiency of water, generation, not saving water, generation of water, will go to the Namib Desert. Spend a few days in the Namib Desert and see how everyone survives. Everyone survives with the abundance of water in an area where we as human beings only see desert, drought, nothing to survive. <clears throat> That's beautiful. Uh, learning from nature and uh, building our um, systems, our business ideas uh, upon that. Um, Another topic uh, I would like to ask about or you to talk about is the topic of uh, waste, wasting water. And I remember, I think uh, that was a couple of years ago when I first time I heard you talk in Estonia. Um, uh, what really made me think uh, was um, mm, using drinking water in our toilets. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is one of the stupidest things we have ever imagined. I mean, we have no water. We have a high cost to produce water. Our food depends on having water for irrigation, we think, although it's not true. And so within that whole logic, we realize that in the city, 30% of the drinking water we have is used to flush our pee and our poo. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, could we, could we please uh, realize that uh, it's not because the kings in France figured out how to use a flushing toilet so they didn't have to build a new castle that was becoming so smelly because they had no way of dealing with the human excrements. Uh, so, so when we finally got to the water closet, the, the flushing toilet, I mean, flushing toilets is a, a, an aberration of human intelligence. I always remind myself in Japan, uh, the Japanese word uh, for our excrements is night soil, is the soil that is created at night. And, and it's a beautiful word because it, that's what it is. I mean, we have the capacity to create a soil from what we have. Now, there is more to it. The most fertile soil that uh, has been created by human intelligence is what we call today terra preta, the black soil. Now, the black soil was already invented by the Vikings. 
I mean, people wondered how in the hell could these Vikings uh, invade uh, France? Uh, because if you have an army to take such long trips, the precondition to be able to have an army, standing army operational, is food. You need to have good food. And it took us a long time to figure out how could the Vikings, with a very short growing season, produce so much food that they could even have excellent food to, to supply to the warriors who would go and, and, and steal and pillage elsewhere in Europe. And the only reason why the Vikings could do it is because they had the Black Earth. They had the Terra Preta. And Terra Preta is a mix of organic waste from plants, organic waste from animals, excrements, and charcoal. And so when you mix charcoal with biological organic waste from plants, with organic waste from humans or animals, then you let it ferment for about a year, then you generate a carbon-rich material that will boost the productivity of the, of the crops because you are boosting nutrition and carbon at a level that has never been seen before. So the same wisdom that the Vikings used was used by and is still used by the native uh, cultures of the Amazon. Because the Amazon has a very poor soil. And so they transformed the poor soil into a rich soil using exactly the same wisdom. Now here comes again a very important water issue. When you have no carbon in your soil, you need a lot of irrigation. So if irrigation level rises, that's because you don't have carbon in the soil. If you have a high carbon content in your soil, then your irrigation needs evaporate. You don't need it anymore because the carbon is a natural um, uh, manager at a nano and the micro level of the availability of water resources to the plants through the mycorrhizal fungi. So what we have forgotten is that since we have been mining agriculture, we've been mining the soil, we've taken all the carbon out, the less carbon you have, the more irrigation you need. And, and this is the combination uh, where I can finally come back to the, to the toilet. Is, you know, we, if you have a well-designed dry toilet, like uh, the Swedish engineer at the University of Uppsala developed, uh, Mats Wolgast. Mats Wolgast designed over, he's a medical doctor, and for 40 years, he was solely dedicated to understanding what to do with what comes out of the human being and, and how to do it. And he, he perfected the, the dry toilet system, which is of such an efficiency and which is such a delight because it is not, again, that we have to save water by now having a toilet that doesn't need 20 liters of water per flush but only three liters of water per flush. We need to have toilets that don't need water because we should never waste what we have. And 
that's symbolism of the toilet. I think today has been um, exacerbated by our new modern symbol of uh, of the 21st century, which is the diaper. I mean, uh, babies don't sit on toilets yet, so they will have a dry toilet. <laughs> the dry toilet is called the diaper. And the diaper, on the other hand, is designed in such a way that it destroys everything that you have. And so I realize that the human being, by being disconnected from nature, by not understanding that carbon, the wealth of carbon in the soil, with minerals only comes from our excrements, from the plant leftovers. I mean, uh, let me just give you one of them, and, and that's potassium. I mean, our body considers potassium as a toxic. But if you don't have potassium, your heart doesn't work. So we need a continuous flow of potassium. So... And then all the potassium that we leave in our excrements, we're destroying. We're not just throwing them away. We're destroying it. That means that the good old philosophy that we are not able to destroy, we're only transforming. We human beings are so smart that we've eliminated that logic. We are able to destroy potassium from this earth. And, and, and that is the risk factor that we're facing. Now, since we consider it obvious that you use a toilet, we have no infrastructure for dealing with the toilet waste because we have never been thinking about it since the origin of the municipal wastewater systems. And the same municipal wastewater systems that were built 100, even 150 years ago, still have to do the job with something that should never have been done in the first place. <clears throat> yeah, this really makes you makes you makes you think. Uh, mm, uh, yeah, about uh, about this, something so simple as a toilet. And uh, I remember uh, first time hearing that it really stuck with me. And uh, and uh, also knowing how many um, innovations uh, have been made in the dry toilet uh, sphere. Uh, there is an uh, there there are beautiful options, good options. Another topic I would like to uh, uh, talk about is uh, mining, mining and uh, mining's effect on water. Uh, uh, personally, I've seen that happen here in Estonia. People who have lost their water and uh, and you can really see it a lot. In uh, I've been in Arizona a couple of times and and there are big mines there. Uh, how it really messes up the water. So mining is an issue that I have wanted to face firsthand um, all around the world. I, I visited uh, more than 30 mines around the world and I've seen the worst. And, and, and when I thought I've seen the worst, I see mines that are even worse than the worst. And, and you know, there is though one reality that we have to accept. Modernity doesn't exist without mining. We will have no cell phone, no internet, no medical equipment, no car, no speed train. We will not have electric cars. None of that is possible without mining. So mining 
is a fact of life. And closing down all the mines uh, may be intellectually a pleasing idea, but from all practical points of view, it will not happen. So then you rather have to say, how do I deal with mining? Because this is what we have to do. And to me, as I describe in my book, The Blue Economy, where I have a whole chapter dedicated to mining, is that mining has to do what the surgeon does when you have an appendicitis. I mean, the surgeon uh, makes a tiny little hole and is able to take out the appendicitis. So why can't we do that with mining? I mean, mining has to be like a surgical intervention into the earth. Mining should not at all be, uh, you know, explosive blasting. I mean, it's like a, a medical doctor would come with an excavator to, to open up your belly. I mean, you, you would run away. Well, that's what we're doing today. We are using excavators where actually small surgical interventions could happen. That's the first observation. The second observation is that we very often uh, see mining and we don't realize that uh, nature has been mining for millions of years. You know, it's, 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 it's quite interesting. We have um, bacteria that have a special affinity for gold, and these bacteria will start accumulating gold. I mean, uh, they, they, they've been doing that for, for millions of years. And, and so why can't we have, instead of using this brutal force, whereby we are ready to blast the, the belly of the earth open, scrape thousands of tons of material, and then wash it with water. <laughs> I mean, hey guys, wash with water? Yeah, we're washing it with water. Why do we need to do it? And, and I always wondered when we have such an interest in genetics and DNA, why don't we use what is called the technology of microfluidics instead of having these master huge operation. Microfluidics is a wonderful application of nature's physics that works all the time. Microfluidics means that you have little pipes that are maybe only two micron. And water behaves different. Anything behaves different when it's in a pipe of two micron. When you're in a pipe of a meter wide, you need big pumps. When you have a little pipe of only two micron, you don't need pumps. It flows on its own. Why are we using brutal force, heat and beat, in order to do mining when actually everything shows to us that you can do it in a very simple way? And just like we've been able to do microelectronics, moving from this very large scale of electronic wiring where we needed to have huge spaces to do the first calculations. And today we can all do it on a little chip. Why can we do it on a chip? Because we miniaturized with water that has such a particular behavior when it is at the nanoscale, very different when it's at the river scale. 
This is why we need to think that what we've done with microelectronics, making transistors smaller and smaller and smaller, we need to do exactly the same for mining and many other applications. We need to go to ever smaller size of pipes. So the transistor we made already a million times smaller and that powers our phones. Let us make the leap forward as nature can teach us, whereby we can have microfluids with an efficiency of extracting gold or tin or any other material that we may want to think of or titanium, but we extract it in the same way with bacteria that have a very particular affinity and it goes so fast, so quick, so efficient, so energy efficient that I don't understand why we keep on thinking of the mines having to be bigger and bigger and bigger and more energy and more pollution and, of course, more destruction to that very fragile surface of the earth which we're destroying. And once you've destroyed those flows of water inside your super cover of the earth, well, then people will lose access to water. And the water that has been flowing for thousands of years will all of a sudden not flow anymore. <clears throat> thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And um, um, uh, talking with uh, uh, with Japan, uh, Masari Moto Peace Project. And um, there I found out that um, uh, why Masari Moto founded the, the Peace Project was to produce uh, 650 million children's books uh, to teach uh, children about uh, the uh, beautiful discovery of uh, water crystals uh, that uh, he made. And uh, I would like to ask you about uh, uh, the fables uh, you create and uh, maybe you could talk about uh, the water fable and the importance of uh, teaching uh, children. So, so thank you so much for the question because, uh, you know, that is where uh, my real heart is, is, is how to tell surprising stories to children. And... Um, I have uh, now 300, uh, just about 360 fables. And um, one-seventh of the fables, that means about 70 fables, are all related to water. So I have a lot of water fables. Um, but the one that I, that I wrote, fable number 37, is about Masaru Emoto. I, I wrote a fable about it. But it was something that I was able to do um, many, many years ago when Masari was still alive. Um, you know, he was so famous for letting the water listen to music. And then he would show that depending on the type of music the water was listening to, um, it had a different crystal. So I was at the time uh, working a lot in South Africa and um, I had uh, the great privilege of uh, meeting Nelson Mandela a few times. And I mentioned to Nelson Mandela that, look, you know, water listens to music. And he said, oh, but does it listen to Soweto music? I mean, uh, could, could I have the Soweto string quartet give you some of their records? And, 
And let's see how the water behaves listening to music from Soweto. I mean, this is us, Africa. And so, of course, uh, I said, of course, Your Excellency will do it right away. And a very unique phenomenon occurred. So normally when Masaru exposes the water to the music, then he waits, he freezes, and then he takes a picture of the crystal. And something very funny occurred. He took a picture of the crystal, and then, you know, he just turned his head, and, and then he turned back, and the crystal kept on dancing, kept on growing. And so he took another picture. And, and you know, it's not easy to take a picture. At the, I mean, he needs to take a couple of hundred pictures to get one picture that is really visible. So by the time he got through this, this water that had listened to Soweto music actually kept on growing long after the music had been turned off. So the African music somehow succeeded in, in keeping the beat going. And, and that is the fable that I wrote, is that, you know, where Nelson Mandela is working, is, is teaching his little grandson the importance of water. And that in order to understand the water, the water needs to listen to music. And of course, uh, the little son says, you know, granddad, <laughs> where do you come from? I mean, why does water have to listen to the music? And of course, as the story goes on, we explain that the African music has this incredible capacity, what even Beethoven and Mozart music couldn't do to water. And, and to me, this is the surprise that we have to bring. And we know that uh, the power of African music is percussions. And, and, and the way percussions impact water. Now, somehow, the way the Soweto string quartet was able to add percussions meant that the water kept on dancing. Uh, <clears throat> that is beautiful. Uh, I always ask the same question as the last question. And um, mm, if water had something to say to us, what would water say to us right now? Leave me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. Let me do good. I mean, I'm doing so much good and you guys are not permitting me to do good. I mean, leave me alone. Let me do good. I think that's what water would say. Thank you, Gunter. Thank you. And congratulations with your work, Rico. It's really um, very, very admiring what you do in putting such a focus on this incredible source of life. Thank you.